Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermon Podcast. Be sure to keep watching immediately after the sermon for Postscript, a weekly podcast with in-depth content and answers to your questions submitted during the sermon. You can also find it on iTunes or at faithbridge.org slash postscript. Well, good morning. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to those of you in the Woodlands campus. Welcome to those of you joining online. We are glad that you are here today. We're going to go ahead and get the Bibles given out. So the ushers are going to come forward. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. We'll be happy to give you one. And if you don't have one to take home, maybe you want to jump into the soap journals. Take this one home as our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 3 today. It's an Old Testament book. Uh, It's going to take us a few minutes to get there though, so just take it, mark it, uh, so you'll be ready uh, when we get to that part. And while we're doing this, I just want to introduce myself. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Luann Riley, and I get the joy and privilege of serving as the Grow Group and Discipleship Director here at FaithBridge. And let me tell you, it is an exciting time to be at FaithBridge. This past May, Pastor Ken shared with us this renewal and revival, this excitement that he was feeling in his soul of what God was doing. And we joined him in praying for revival in our own souls and in our lives, in our homes, in our small groups, in our serve teams, our mission trips, and in our church and our community. And God is definitely on the move here. In fact, over the last two weeks, more than 250 adults over two campuses studied together, jumped in to study together God's word and to learn more about him through our summer studies. And one of the best parts about what I get to do in the adult ministries team is I get to sit with people and I get to hear their stories and I get to hear how God is speaking to them and how God is moving in their lives and moving them to use their gifts to serve and drawing them into community. And it is exciting to hear what God is doing in the lives of people. So I wanna ask you a question today. I wanna see by a show of hands, how many of you have ever prayed for revival? Some of us, yeah. And if you didn't raise your hand, uh, you're not alone. I am new to this idea of praying for revival. About four years ago, I came onto our staff uh, on the adult ministries team. And during the first week, our executive pastor, Dylan Lucas, uh, took us on a team retreat. Now I have to tell you, I wasn't super excited about this idea of a team spiritual retreat uh, with people that I'd never met before. I never worked in ministry. And so I was trying to imagine what we might possibly be doing on this retreat, like singing Kumbaya or sitting in a circle, sharing our insides, crying, hugging. I I wasn't really sure what was gonna be happening at this spiritual retreat. Probably things that I was not prepared for. Uh, But it turned out that this time together, uh, just kind of away from the busyness of our lives, uh, gave us time to spend time with God, but also to learn from each other. In one late night session, Dylan asked us a question. He asked us, what do you dream about? And so I was kind of looking around the room because I didn't want to be the first one to answer. And I was thinking, well, I dream about taking a really nice vacation. And I dream about maybe possibly one day building like our dream home. Or I pray about my kid, I dream about my kid's future. I think about what that might look like as they grow older. And then my friend, Jason Connor, who is now a missionary uh, in London said this. He said, I dream about revival. He said, I dream about a movement of God like we have never seen. I dream about people coming to know the Lord in the thousands. I dream about football stadiums packed out with people worshiping the Lord. I dream about the gospel going to all nations. And I thought, wow, (laughs) my dreams, my prayers, my thoughts about God, they're way too small. I think we all do that to some extent. We're satisfied with these smaller dreams, like what we might do with the next bonus we get, or what vacation we might take, or what upgrade that we might make on our house next. And C.S. Lewis says it like this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around the drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to make on, make, go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
But Jason wasn't. Jason was dreaming big dreams. And he was praying and asking God to bring revival, to move in his life, his friends' lives, his home, his church, his community, and even the world. Jason not only was dreaming and praying, but he was believing God can and wants to bring revival to his people. I'm gonna submit to you today, friends, that there is no bigger prayer than the prayer for revival. And so this word revival, you see where I grew up, a revival uh, usually happened in a tent over the course of a few weeknights with a visiting preacher, a gospel quartet, and a fair amount of old people. Yeah, just saying. If you were there, it's usually because your grandparents made you come. I'm just saying. But revival, it's not a meeting. It's not an event. It's not something that you put on. No, a revival is a powerful movement of God. A revival is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that changes the hearts and lives of every person that it comes in contact with. From those who are far from God and lost to those who have known the Lord for years, God is moving and he is doing something new in his people. You see, God is bringing revival in individual lives all the time, all over the world. People are moving from death to life and coming to know him. But when God brings revival to a church or to a city or to a community, he's doing the same thing in all the people at the same time. And it spreads like wildfire. It's contagious. You know, not only throughout the Bible, but also through history, there's large revivals. And some of those happened right here in the U.S. Some of you may be familiar with the Great Awakening, one of the largest revivals, or the Second Great Awakening that happened after that. You know, I recently read the story of a man named Jeremy Lamphere, and he was in New York City during the 1850s. And so in the 1850s, uh, New York City, this was a depressing time. There was a threat of war. Uh, There was high job loss, high unemployment, uh, looming depression, and God put on Jeremy's heart to pray for revival and to start hosting these lunchtime prayer meetings. And so what he did is he went off throughout the city and he posted up these posters inviting people to come to this prayer lunch. On the first day, he had one person, but they ate lunch and they prayed for revival. And the next day, a few more. And at the end of the first week, 20. At the end of the second week, 40. And then it grew by the hundreds. It spread throughout the city. It spread to other cities. And they were seeing crazy revival. They were praying for revival. They were seeing people healed. They were seeing prayers answered. They were seeing people, more and more people come to know the Lord. And one of the crazy things about it is all the businesses, all the offices, all the restaurants started closing down at noon because so many people were going to these prayer revivals. And do you know that the end of a two-year span, more than one million people came to know the Lord. Could you imagine if that happened in Spring, Texas? Like what if all the strip centers and the restaurants and the businesses closed down because people were so excited to come here to pray and see God move? President Roosevelt says this, he says, I doubt there is a problem, political or economic, that would not melt before the fire of a spiritual awakening. Now, that's the kind of revival that we could use, right? Right here, right now. And I believe that God wants to bring revival to his people. I believe God wants to move in our lives. So what does it take to experience spiritual revival in your own heart, in your life, or in the lives of the people that you know are in our city or even in our church here at Faithbridge? What does it take? Well, in the book of Acts, Peter gives us insight to a key component into revival. Peter urges the church, he says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Another translation says it this way, repent in order that there may come periods of spiritual revival and refreshment from the presence of the Lord. So we see Peter here in the book of Acts filled with the Holy Spirit, and he teaches us that repentance precedes revival. So what does this word repent mean? What does repentance mean? Well, I recently learned that if you're military, if you to repent, it means that you turn and march in the other direction. 
Or maybe if you think about repentance, you think it's some super religious or religious kind of procedure that you have to follow, prayers that you have to pray. Or maybe you think about it in terms of Old Testament times where in the Old Testaments they they did this thing where they put sackcloth on them uh, made out of goat's hair and they rubbed ashes all over themselves and sat in them wailing and mourning their sin. Maybe you think it's outdated like that or old fashioned. But I wanna tell you today that repentance, it's not just for super religious people. It's not just for old, outdated, old-fashioned term. It's not just something to be dreaded or avoided. No, repentance is a relevant, life-changing, powerful, ongoing part of our walk with Christ. You see, God uses repentance to bring revival to our hearts. Repentance is God's way of extending his grace and his power when we sin. So let's be real. We all sin, it's inevitable. We are broken, messy people and no matter how hard we try to get it right, we mess it up, we get it wrong, we love things more than God, we make mistakes, we fall into these patterns of sin or addiction, it's who we are. But it's how we respond to the sin in our lives that changes us. And we don't have to wonder how to respond to sin in our lives because God gives us clear direction all throughout the Bible to how to handle sin. And one of the best examples that I can think of comes from Jeremiah. So if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be in Jeremiah chapter three. And while you're getting to Jeremiah chapter three, let me tell you a little bit about Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was an Old Testament prophet and he had the most intense nickname ever. He was the weeping prophet. So not a real big hit at parties, I hear. (laughs) Don't usually invite him. Uh, But God spoke to him about repentance and redemption with such depth that we would do well to pay attention. So let's start reading in Jeremiah chapter three, verse 12. It says, go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage is that God in his mercy shows us when we need to repent. See, the first thing God says is, return. He calls us to turn around. Two weeks ago, my parents came into town and they brought with them the sweet baby girl that they are fostering. And she she just turned one and she is adorable, but one is a very busy, busy age. And I haven't had babies in my house for a very long time. So we are not baby proof. And she was really curious. So we were constantly uh, getting her out of the pantry where she would go to find all the treasures. Or we would take our finger (laughs) and be like, open your mouth, let me stick my finger in because what do you have in your mouth now? It's like every little thing that was on the floor she had to taste. But the love of her life, the desire of her soul was the staircase. I mean, never mind that she had free range of the whole downstairs. She wanted the dangerous, wooden, way too steep stairs. And that's where she meant she was going. She wanted them more than anything else. It was just too tempting. And so every time that we weren't looking, she would crawl that way as fast as she could. And so we would call to her. We would say, no, no, come back come back. It's too dangerous. Come back. And then she would look at us and she would usually start heading right back towards the stairs. So we'd say it again. No, no, come back, come back. It's too dangerous for you. Come back. And we would do that over and over again, no matter how many times it took to keep her safe. And that's what God is doing for us when he calls us to repentance. He's saying, no, no, this path that you're headed down, these sins that you're involved in, these idols that you have, these desires that you have that aren't for me, these are dangerous for you. Come back, come back to me, return. God shows us when we need to return. He calls out to us and says, return. And he does this in a variety of ways. 
He uses the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and show us how we need to return. So he uses messages like this on a Sunday. How many of you have ever come to church on a Sunday and heard a message and thought, wow, that was for me. You left convicted and you knew that is the Holy Spirit working in your life. Another way that he speaks to me and he calls out to me is often through the reading of his word, through my soap journals. Back in January, as we headed into the new year, I was in a super busy season with the kids going back to school and just really busy here and my husband's job and everything that was going on. And I was super overwhelmed, uh, exhausted, and honestly, just really stressed out. And I almost skipped my soap journals one morning. I almost skipped my quiet time just to jump into work and have those few extra minutes, but I'm glad that I didn't because the Lord had something for me that day. I opened up my Bible to Exodus 33, and I read about Moses talking to the Lord about the burden of leading God's people and needing something to relieve that burden. And in verse 14, it says, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And I got the message loud and clear. God was saying to me, no, no, Luann, you're going down the path of busyness. This is not good for you. This is not good for your soul. You're getting it all out of order again, and you need rest. You need my presence. I am with you. Come and rest. And he was so right. Another way that God speaks to us quite often is through other people. It really is amazing how much more clear other people can see our sins than we can. If you're married, you know that that is true. (laughs) It's one of the reasons that God created us to be in community. It's one of the reasons that we grow best as disciples in community because we have people to speak into our lives. We have people to speak truth to us and to encourage us and to ask us how we're doing in these seasons and to point things out to us. You know, I had a discipleship group one time uh, and we were talking about confession and repentance. And uh, one of my friends said to me, she said, you know, I don't really know what sin I have in my life right now. And I said, well, here's what you should do. You should go home and you should ask your husband and your children And I'm sure that they'll have something for you. Now, if you try that today, don't send me an email about it or anything. Just be prepared for what they might say, okay? Here's the thing. God uses his Holy Spirit in a variety of ways to extend this invitation to repent. The next step, though, is up to us. If you'll look in verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and that you have not obeyed my voice. So this passage teaches us is that we have to be honest with ourselves and with God about the sin and disobedience in our life. It says acknowledge your guilt. We have to admit when we are wrong. And for me, this is a really hard part. Because you see, I don't like to be wrong. In fact, I'm pretty obsessed with being right. Uh, So much so that uh, in our marriage one time recently, I told my husband, well, you're right and I'm wrong. And he responded by taking out his phone and asking me to say it on video so that uh, we could have documentation of this moment. I'm sure he like plays it over and over again. It's hard, y'all. It is so hard to admit when we're wrong. It's so hard to admit the sin that's in our lives. It's so hard to be honest about things that we love more than God. When I turned 21, my grandparents, my very cool grandparents, took me on a cruise for my birthday. And so I would stay out super late at night, uh, and then I would come back to the room and just crash And my grandfather, who is former Navy and has been waking up with the birds for his entire life, would wake up early in the morning, sing a little song, and then throw back the curtains in our room, letting the bright Caribbean sunlight shine right on my face. And so I would shriek and I would get right back under the covers as fast as I could to try to hide because I felt exposed. And that's 
what God is doing when he calls us to repentance. That is the feeling that we have when he shines his light right on our sin and disobedience. We feel exposed because we feel better if our sin is in the dark. We feel like we have sin under control if we don't think about it, talk about it, acknowledge it, or heaven forbid, tell someone about it. We had rather just keep it hidden. And if we can't keep it hidden, then we maybe could blame someone else, kind of minimize it or rationalize it. You know, we have this uncanny ability of revising events in our head to make them seem less sinful when we replay them over, make ourselves look just a little bit better in the situation. We also have the ability to kind of take our true motives in a situation and kind of just push those down so that when we're talking about our sin, we could at least say, well, we, we had good intentions. We, we didn't mean to sin. It's not our fault. And so this idea of acknowledging our guilt, of talking honestly before the Lord, of exposing who we really are, what we really think about, what we really care about, what we really want, it's easier to just hide it or justify it. We tell ourselves things like, uh, so maybe I said a few things in this situation that I regret, but I didn't start the argument. Or I don't think I should really have to forgive in this situation because I'm right. Like I know that I'm right. And so I shouldn't really have to forgive. Or we tell ourselves, you know, I only look at this stuff because my wife is withholding. If she wasn't, I wouldn't have to look at this. Or we tell ourselves that that guy at work, he's just a friend. You know, my husband doesn't really like to talk very much about things, and he kind of understands me better anyway. So all these texts, all these, all these lunches, they're no big deal. Nothing physical is happening. When it comes to our sin, we don't want to be honest and we definitely don't want to talk about it. I mean, I think even now, some of us in our seats are probably breaking into a sweat thinking about being honest about our sin. I mean, I'm sweating up here just talking about it. We desperately don't want to talk about our sin or be honest about it with God. And I'm going to give you two reasons why, why we so desperately want to avoid it. Pride and fear. Those are two reasons. On one hand, pride tells us our rebellious hearts, our rebellious hearts revolt at the idea that our way might not be the right way. Pride makes us defensive if someone points something out to us. Pride tells us that I'm not the one of the problems, I'm fine, it's they, they have the problems. I'm happy, I'm good, it's them. Pride benchmarks ourselves against other people. We say, oh, well, at least I'm not doing that or I'm not doing this, or I'm doing better than that guy next door. Pride makes us feel like we have it under control and that we don't really need God. We all struggle with pride when it comes to honestly like self-assessing. I wanna read you an article because I found this fascinating. I recently read a fascinating article titled, Everyone Thinks They're Above Average. Did you know that 93% of Americans rate themselves as an above average driver? 93%? Have you driven in Houston lately? I'm just wanting to know. Have you seen the cars? I mean, ridiculous, 93%. They either like missed our entire demographic or we are super prideful when it comes to rating our driving. Well, except for me when my big dose of humility came two weeks ago when I backed out of my driveway into my neighbor's parked car, like parked car. So I'm in the 7% in case y'all wanted to know where I'm rating myself these days. And so we all struggle with pride when it comes to thinking about ourselves. But we also struggle with fear, I think. Fear that if we really looked at ourselves honestly, if we really opened up what was going on inside of us, what we're struggling with, what we think about, if we were really honest about those things, would God really love us? You know, I've been there, afraid that 
If God really knew about my sinful actions, if God really knew about my bad choices and my mistakes, the things that I have done, the things that I think about, there's no way he would want me. There's no way he could forgive me. He would be angry at me or disappointed or I would be out of chances. There's a fear of God's reaction, but I wanna show you what it says here in verse 12. When God says return, he says, I will not look on you in anger because I am merciful. Merciful, kind, and forgiving. Over and over, God tells us and shows us this is who he is. He says throughout the Bible, when he's calling for repentance, he always says, repent, I am merciful. Repent, my love is steadfast. Repent, I am faithful. Repent, I am forgiving. He wants to give us another chance. He wants us to understand why he's calling us to repentance. He and his mercy sees us heading down a path that's not good for us, trapped in a sin, following a desire or an addiction or an idol that's not good for us. And in his mercy, he can't help but call us to return because he loves us. He wants good for us. He wants better for us. It's because of God's love for us that repentance is even possible because God says to us, no matter what you're doing, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter what your past is, no matter what yesterday looked like, I am committed to you. I am faithful. I am committed to working on this with you. I'm committing to save you. I'm committing to give you better and good because I love you. He is a good father who wants good things for us. But I don't think that God's reaction is the only thing that we fear when it comes to repentance. I think sometimes we fear what God might ask us to change or to give up or to do if we truly come to him to repent. If we truly come to him and surrender if we say, Lord, I don't want this anymore. I don't want this life anymore. I don't want this sin anymore or this idol. What would he ask us to give up? How different would our life look? What might he ask us to change? And you see, true repentance is all about change. True repentance is not just coming to the Lord and confessing our sins and our struggles, but it's asking and desiring God to change us. You see, when my boys were 18 months old, I became a stay-at-home mom somewhat unwillingly. I had this picture in my head. I just had this dream of myself and what my life would look like growing up and that I would be this career-minded woman who could just have it all. And so I went back to work after the boys were born, but I was in this position where I was working like 70 hours a week. And I felt like I never saw my children. And so we'd been praying for months for a new job, one that wasn't as demanding or maybe part-time or something that, where I could have both. And the Lord just kept shutting the doors. And so when they were almost two, I uh, stayed home to help support my husband in his traveling of his job and to raise my kids. And if I'm honest, I felt like I was drowning. You see, in the stay-at-home mom gig, there's no praise, there's no glory, there's no good job on that uh, sales goal, there's no high rating on that review, there's no affirmation, there's no reward at the end of the day for your good work. And I felt lost. I realized that I had built my entire identity around my career and that's where I got my affirmation from and that's where I got my value from. And when that was taken away from me, I didn't know what to do with myself. And so I responded by pouring myself into uh, our life. I became obsessed with things like finding the perfect Mother's Day out or preschool or planning these elaborate birthday parties or looking at homes in the perfect neighborhood with the perfect schools for when they go to kindergarten in like three years. Uh, I would go to our friend's house, perfectly wonderful, amazing friends who would invite us over for play dates, but then I would come home and I'd feel like our house just didn't measure up. And so I would need a new one. 
and a new car, which was easier to get the kids in and out, and the right activities for our kids. All of these things I became obsessed with, and I was still going to church, and I was still in small group, but they weren't really spilling out into the rest of my life. They were also part of the perfect life with the perfect plan. And then one day I read a book. It's a book called Anything, The Prayer That Unlocked My God and My Soul by Jenny Allen. And my heart began to race and pound in my chest as I read it because I knew God was using it to speak to me. And I want to read you a quote from the book. She says, As real life and responsibilities moved in, I felt God pressed out. Religion, church, Bible study were all in place, but truly surrendered lives, the kind that God could use anywhere and in any way that he chose had quickly turned into planned and calculated lives that focused on things like saving for a suburban or a minivan. And then she goes on to ask a question that pierced my heart. She said, has your life become about cute houses, safe schools, and good friends? Is that how you value your life? And it had. I saw it in my life. I saw it in the things that I thought about. I saw it in the things that I spent my time doing. I saw it in the things that I dreamed about. It wasn't the things of God. It wasn't what God wanted to do in my life. It was building my life, my kingdom, my perfect world right here. And most of the time praying and asking God to bless it. And he opened my eyes and my heart to my sin. And so I began confessing. And I confessed that my sin of pride and entitlement, materialism, comparison, I confessed the idols that I had built for myself, success, affirmation, comfort, safety, image. Oh God, image, what it looked like. And then I repented. And I asked God to change me. I asked God to give me a new life, a sold out, surrendered, anything kind of life, a life that said, God, I will do anything. I will give up anything. I will sell anything. I will do anything. I will change anything. I will move anywhere. God, I will do whatever it takes. I just want you done with this. And do you know what it felt like when I did that? Do you know what it felt like in the days following? It felt like freedom. It felt like these chains that had tied me for so many years to the things that don't matter were gone. And it felt like hope. It felt like excitement. It felt like my life was going to be about what God created me for, for him, not for all these things that in the end don't even matter. And I remember how excited I was, I couldn't sleep. And so I'd lay awake at night thinking about what God might be asking us to do. And so I remember waking my husband up in the middle of the night one night and saying, hey, hey, so I'm thinking that what God is gonna ask us to do is like sell all this stuff, sell our house, sell everything, pack it all up. And then we're gonna move overseas to a mud hut. That's it, that's where we're going. We're going to a mud hut, all right, this is it. And then my husband was like, could we talk about the mud hut in the morning? Could <laughs> but I was so excited about the idea of what God might do. And it turns out that the first thing that God asked me to do was to take this money and this vacation time for my husband and time that we had set aside to go to Disney to go on mission trips. And I went to Honduras and my husband went to Haiti and God has been doing and moving in our lives ever since we surrendered it. But it was God in his mercy and in his kindness and his love who opened my eyes to my sin and my disobedience and my idols and who brought revival to my heart and my life and hasn't stopped moving ever since, which has brought me all the way here to tell you guys about what God can do when we surrender, when we repent, when we turn from our idols and give him free reign in our hearts and lives to move. And I've messed up so bad then, since then. I've had so many moments of confession, other moments of repentance, but what God did in that season was to teach me how to live with a repentant heart, a heart that is open and surrendered and willing to change whatever God wants me to change. He taught me how to live in freedom 
And that's what he wants for all of us. That's the kind of life that he sent his son to die for. I wanna show you something in scripture. Jesus, very first words when he began his preaching ministry. So Jesus, he starts his preaching ministry and the words are recorded in the book of Matthew. And Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He doesn't say repent or you're going to hell. Repent, you're gonna be punished for sins. His very first preaching words were repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, God is here. Repent, God wants to do something in your life right now and right here. Repent because I am bringing revival. Jesus's whole ministry was revival. Lives were transformed. People were restored. Marriages were restored. It spread throughout. Jesus, because of his death, because he took the punishment for our sins, because of his resurrection, we get to experience the kingdom of heaven right here. The soul-changing, life-changing, soul-reviving power of the gospel. Jesus, our lives, revival in our lives start the moment that we say yes to Jesus, but it's not supposed to stop there. It should spill out of us into our homes and our families, into our workplaces and our schools and our communities and our cities with that same transformative power. And if you have not experienced this awakening of your soul, this revival that comes from giving your life to Christ, this power that it, that it holds, then do it today. God is here and he is moving. And for all of us, we can experience revival. We can experience refreshing and newness in our lives when we come to him as a people and we repent. And so I'm gonna ask you to do something today. We're gonna move here into a time of prayer. And as we do that, I wanna ask you to put down your defenses, set aside the pride, any fears that you may have, any doubts. I wanna ask you to come honestly before the Lord, to bring your heart honestly to him. God is here and God is moving and we're gonna give him space to speak to us today. And so right there in your seats, if you will go ahead and bow your heads. Father, we come to you this morning knowing that you are a good, good God and you desire good things for us. And so right now, right where you are, right here in all of our hearts today, God, we want you to show us, ask God to show you where he's shining his light on you. Where is God calling you to return where have you gotten it sideways? Where have you gotten it wrong? Ask God to show you right now for his Holy Spirit to speak to you. And God, as you are moving in this room, we thank you that you want better for us. And so we're gonna come to you now and we're going to acknowledge our guilt right there where you are, confess to him. Confess that situation that's on your heart today. Confess that sin. Confess the idols. Confess where we've not obeyed, where God has asked us to do something. Spend some time right now acknowledging that to the Lord. And now, as a body of Christ, as a family here at Faith Bridge, individually in your seats, repent. Ask God to change it and change you, to do whatever it takes for you to be free of this. And I wanna say, if you are in a hard, dark place, today, if what you need changed, if what you're involved in or what situation's happening to you in your life feels hard and it feels impossible and it feels like there's no way out, let me tell you, there is no person, no sin, no anything that is too far from the redemptive power of our God. He can 
and he will and he wants to bring life and change to that situation. So surrender it to him and trust him, whatever he asks you to do. There's no shame, there's no guilt, there's no condemnation in our God. There's only love and mercy and grace. And a moment as we move to communion, we remember that we are changed by the gospel. We remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross that we would in this moment be receiving forgiveness and grace and mercy for all the ways that we've messed it up. And so I want you to stay in this prayerful moment, but you can raise your head for a minute. Jesus, the last supper, he was dining with the disciples and he took the bread and he gave thanks for it. And then he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks for it. And he told the disciples, take, drink. This is my blood shed for your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, at Faith Bridge, we have an open table, which means if you have a relationship with Jesus or you desire a relationship with Jesus, you are welcome at our table. You will come forward in a few minutes and the ushers will lead you. But when you come forward, you'll take the gluten-free cracker, you'll dip it in the juice. You have the prayer altar here is open to pray or the prayer partners will be forward and they would love to pray with you as well. Don't miss this moment. Don't rush out. Don't leave. Don't talk. This is a moment where we get to commune with a holy living God who is active and moving and present here today. We get to come to the table and acknowledge as a family, as a body of Christ, our need for a savior. And we get to leave today changed by the transformative power of his grace. We can experience revival. I want you to join me all in prayer. Father, we confess today our sins. We confess our apathy or how we get our priorities all wrong and we focus on so many other things that are happening and we lose our focus on you, God. But today we surrender that and we come to you as a body and we lay it down and we ask you to move in our hearts, move in our lives. Give us that hunger and excitement for our faith that just spills out of us into every home represented in here, every relationship and marriage and child and family and workplace. God, we come to you today and we ask you for revival. We ask for you to move and to bring people to you and for us to be part of that. And God, we ask for big things because we know that you are a big God and you are powerful and you are moving. And we are so thankful and grateful that we praise you and worship you today for that sacrifice that you made on the cross for us. God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your son. And it's in his precious name we pray today. Amen. Welcome to Postscript. Here we hope to answer your questions and help you dig deeper into the messages and sermons at FaithBridge by talking with the teacher of the day. Hello and welcome to Postscript. My name is Adam McIntyre and I am joined today by Luann Riley, who just preached a sermon called The Heart of Revival. Luann, thank you so much for being here with us today. So in your sermon, uh, we learned that the heart of revival is really repentance. Mm -hmm. Uh, Repentance, um, you talked about how it's repentance that leads to revival. It's Mm -hmm. repentance that leads to to freedom. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then a lot of times um, things like fear and like pride can stand in the way uh, of repentance, not to mention that repentance uh, can sometimes feel scary. Um, And so uh, if you could, um, could you just walk us through practically what it looks like in your life 
uh, to repent. How does Luann Riley repent? Uh, yes, yeah, so when we're talking about repentance, um, one of the parts that I didn't really focus on today that I talked more about at Ash Wednesday uh, was repentance leads to freedom, but that doesn't mean that it, it's not painful sure. or there's not sorrow right. or there's not brokenness mm -hmm. um, involved. And so when I was talking about being honest about ourselves, um, you know, one of the things that I do each morning in my quiet time is I spend some time confessing. Yeah. Uh, I have this great sheet of questions that I kind of walk through about myself. It's like, what are you valuing these days? Mm -hmm. What what does your interactions and relationships look like yesterday? Uh, just just constant like heart checks that I feel like I have to keep uh, with. And so I think through those questions, and you know, I ask the Lord in my quiet times to to show me things that I might not be able to see. Um, and so I think one of the keys to repentance is uh, being willing to be open. Mm -hmm. About who we are and who our sins are, and to constantly be asking God to, to show us those things and to confess those things. Um, and so, you know, I feel like I've had seasons where there was these huge moments of repentance, like we I talked about in my sermon today, and that was confessing and crying and mournful and saddened because I can see myself for who I really was. I right. could see the brokenness. I could see all the places that was wrong. Um, and so oftentimes repenting involves uh, telling other people too. Yeah. Uh, repenting might mean having to say you're sorry to someone else. Not only is it making it okay with God and saying these things to God, but sometimes it could be other people. You know, for me, uh, recently I had another season where I had to repent of things that I had made uh, my life about again, like yeah. getting to this place where I feel uh, comfortable, like comfort is a huge thing for me. And I yeah. can begin to see it in my life when I start making decisions based on my comfort level in this situation. Okay. Uh, am I gonna put myself out there or not? And when I see those moments and I ask God to change that, one of the things that I do is I tell someone about it. Um, for this last recent time, it was my team and lead team and my husband and sometimes my small group. Uh, but making these things known, you know how I talked about when we keep it in the dark, I think that the enemy uses shame and guilt and this idea of us having to keep it in the dark and look a certain way and be a certain way and not admit our brokenness. And that actually allows it to grow. It allows yeah, <laughs> our sins absolutely. to grow and it moves us farther from God. And I think one of the most freeing things that you can do is not only admit to yourself, but admit to other people where you're failing or where you're struggling. And uh, I have a friend who I talk to on the phone every week and she'll check in with me about these things. How are you doing? She often calls me on things that when I'm telling her situation, she's like, yeah, I, I don't know about that. Like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? How did you really feel or how are you reacting to these things? So I think practically for me, uh, repentance looks like refle reflection being open and confessing, and then also uh, sharing that with other people in my life yeah. who can keep a check on that. Um, I think repentance can show in a different way though. I can think of these big moments mm -hmm. like I described today, but I can also think of smaller yeah. times. And once I had that huge, big repentant moment that I talked about today, when I talked about how it changed my heart, right. I hadn't been open to repentance mm -hmm. really before that. And once I saw how God can move, how much freedom I felt to wake up and make my decisions based on God, to ask him what he wanted for my life, to be willing to sacrifice my image, my comfort, my safety, any of these things. Once I kind of stepped on in faith and like he showed up and things were happening, uh, it became easier to repent yeah. and to keep that repentant heart that says, oh, I'm sorry, you're right. I did hurt you in that situation. I want to repent from that. Like, I don't want to do that again. And so I'm going to ask a friend or someone in my small group right. to ask me about it and see how it's going. So I think practically confessing, sharing that with other people, and then constantly evaluating your life to see if it's coming 
yeah. if you see signs of it again. That's good. Man, there's so much good stuff in what you just said of our need to uh, repent and confess, confess and repent daily, mm-hmm. right? It's not just a one-time thing. It should be happening constantly. You talk about how every morning you evaluate, okay, where do I need to confess? Where do I need to repent? And so it's, it's something that needs to be happening every single day. And you talked about the importance of community mm-hmm. in that of we were not meant to repent alone, right? Our community is supposed to be a source of uh, accountability uh, and then of of encouragement to help us um, stay on track after we repent. That's that's huge. And then you also mentioned something. Uh, you said that once you had that one big moment of repentance, mm-hmm. uh, it became easier after that. And then in your sermon, you mentioned how repentance leads to freedom. Yeah. A lot of times we have this Old Testament view of like sackcloth and ash, and it seems like this really dark, you know, uh, kind of scary you know, thing. I, I think I thought about at one time repentance being kind of like how we live out punishment. Like, yeah. um, Repentance is the punishment for our sin, which is where we put on sackcloth and ashes, or we wail, or we do these things, uh, I think, <laughs> rip your sleeves or tear your clothes or, or whatever it is. And that that's sort of the, the way that we pay for our sins or the way that we punish ourselves for our sins. And that kind of puts us back at like, like even, uh, which is not what repentance is at all. I mean, repentance is acknowledging uh, where we get it wrong. It is being broken over our sin. There is sorrow and it's hard. Um, Sometimes God asks us to do really hard things when we repent. Um, You know, I have a friend who Uh, they had a situation in their marriage and it was his job. There was something at his job that was causing this. And so when they were working on it, they repented. The answer was leave your job. You need to have a new job. There are hard things that God might ask us to do when we repent, which is one of the things I've talked about we were afraid of. Uh, But when we do that and when we say, God, you are first, when we put the eternal things that matter as the focus of our life, there is freedom. Absolutely. There is this ability to pursue the things of God in a way that we weren't before because those things were keeping us from the fullness right. of what God has for us. Sin divides us. Sin keeps us from the fullness of our relationship with God. And thank goodness that Jesus died on the cross so we don't have to earn it back or do anything, but we do constantly have to go to that fountain of grace. That's right over and over again and say, God, I need you, I need you, and write that relationship so we can walk in the fullness of what he has for us. That's right. Yeah, It's not him trying to balance the scales of justice. It's him offering us freedom. You had a great analogy in your sermon where uh, you talked about when you're at the Bahamas and you wanted to stay in bed yes, all in day. The and then, you know, uh, the light's thrown on you and you're like, oh, no. And it really is. Uh, like a lot of times when we're stuck in our sin, it's easy and it's comfortable mm-hmm. um, and it takes little effort to just be able to stay in our sin and to hide from the light. But then we miss out on, yep. you miss out we on miss a day out on in the beach, right? You miss mm-hmm. out on all of this wonderful things that happen when you actually embrace the light, you come out of that darkness. And that's what you're talking about when you talk about how freedom is waiting for us yeah. um, if we just repent. Uh, and so, man, that's that was a great sermon. Really, thank really you. enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you all for tuning in. We'll see y'all next time. Thanks for joining us for Postscript. Help us keep the podcast interactive by submitting your questions during the morning services. Learn more at faithbridge.org postscript.